Hello everyone, here's a new episode for you and this one is also sponsored by italki, a super convenient and flexible way to get one-to-one lessons to improve your English as quickly and effectively as possible. If you're serious about learning a language, then italki is the perfect service for you. Are you looking for a one-to-one teacher? Would you like to take English lessons on Skype whenever and wherever you want? Well, look no further because italki might well be the solution for you. And remember that italki are offering all of you a discount voucher worth $10 when you get some lessons. Uh, Check it out at teacherluke.co.uk slash talk or click an italki logo on my website for all the relevant information. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, podcast people. How are you doing out there in podcast land today? Hope you're doing all right. Here's a new episode for you. And this one is um, like uh, following on from the previous episode, which was all about reading books in English. And in that episode, I basically kind of gave you some comments about the value of reading books in English and how it's an important part of your English learning process. Uh, I talked to you about um, some uh, ways in which you can like choose the right book for you. And then a couple of approaches that you can use when you're uh, reading books in English um, with a view to improving your English long term. Um, Also, you could listen to episode 256 of this podcast, which was also about reading books. And uh, I made a few personal recommendations and also, you know, talked about some academic research into the importance of uh, reading books in English. Um, Hopefully, you are sharing some of your favourite books in English uh, in the comments section of the website, because that's really important, because my listeners uh, will probably be thinking about, oh, which book can I read? Um, I haven't got any ideas. So checking out the comments section could be a good idea. You might get some inspiration uh, there. I don't know how easy it is for you to get uh, books in English. I imagine that many of you have uh, Amazon Kindles or similar um, uh, devices for reading and you can just download them in English. And that's great because those uh, things like, you know, the Kindle or other other stuff like that, um, they can be really useful because many of them have dictionary uh, functions in them and you can create word lists in them and things like that. Uh, so that's great. Otherwise, I don't know, maybe you can, if you've got a local bookshop, maybe they've got a little selection of English books or you can have them delivered to your door by some sort of mail order company. Um um, so there you go. Also, you know, you can you can always get the audiobook version of a book that you've read. And uh, I still do have a deal with Audible. Um, you can basically get a free audiobook from Audible uh, if you go to audibletrial.com slash, um, what is it? Audibletrial.com slash Teacher Luke. A-U-D-I-B-L-E-T-R-I-A-L.com slash Teacher Luke. And um, you can get a... Th- 30-day membership with Audible, free, and that includes a free uh, uh, download of any of their audiobooks. Not bad. Okay, then. So, uh, the plan in this episode is to tell you about some of the books that I've got right here next to me. And uh, I'm just bending down to pick them up. Here we go. Ooh, how many books do I have here? All right, how many books have I got in this pile? It's a fairly big pile. I've got another pile downstairs. I've just got so many books that I need to read. So right in front of me here, I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, 
9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. I've got 16 books in front of me. And the plan is that I'm just going to go through these books and just talk to you about them. Um, why am I doing this? Well, partly I just want to kind of inspire you to go out and get your hands on some books yourselves. And also because I just want to share these books and um, I'm just kind of, I can't wait to, to, to properly read them. And, um, and I think there's some really interesting content here as well. Uh, so I'm just going to go, I'm going to tell you about the books I've got and I might uh, read like little passages from them. Um, and, um, you know, you might want to read some of these books. The, these might be books that you don't know about. You might want to get uh, yourself uh, a copy of one of these books if any of them sound appealing to you. Um, I've got a, uh, a selection of uh, fiction and non-fiction. Um, in fact, a lot of this stuff is non-fiction, to be honest. I think most of it's non-fiction, in fact. Uh, I guess I read quite a lot of non-fiction. You know, you can basically divide books into fiction and non-fiction. Fiction means, you know, stuff that's been made up, you know, like stories, um, uh, invented stories. And non-fiction is all stuff based in fact. So it's stuff about, you know, information about the world on different topics and things. Um, so I've got 16 books here, a mix of fiction and non-fiction. And I'm going to go through them with you right now. Now, the first, and, and I've put them in a pile here, which is now on my lap. And we're going from small to big. So the big books are at the bottom and the little books are at the top. And the first three books I've got at the top are part of this guide, uh, not part of this guide, part of a series, um, which is quite a well known series. And it's a fairly old series now. Um, I guess they were m first published in the in the 90s, I think. I guess so. I guess they were first published in the 90s. And this this series is called The Xenophobe's Guide. The Xenophobe's Guide. Now, what's a xenophobe? Well, it comes from the word xenophobia. And xenophobia is an irrational fear of foreigners. Okay, now xenophobia is a really bad thing. Uh, all right, it's a really bad thing. It's, it's similar to racism. Uh, you know, xenophobia is like a fear of foreign people, which is, you know, not a good thing, not something uh, I want to encourage at all. Uh, now, the this guide, uh, uh, this series of guides is called the Xenophobes Guide. And it's, it's basically a tongue-in-cheek uh, series of books about different countries, okay? They're meant to be uh, humorous and a bit sarcastic, so I've got the Xenophobes Guide to the French, I've got the Xenophobes Guide to the Japanese, and I also have the Xenophobes Guide to the English. And essentially, um, these books are like funny little books about different countries, and they have like Xenophobes Guides for loads and loads of different countries. Um, you know, like the, uh, the Americans, the Australians, the Austrians, the Belgians, the Canadians, the Chinese, the Czechs, the Danes, the Dutch, the English, the Estonians, the Finns, the French, the Germans, the Greeks, the Icelanders, the Irish, the Israelis, the Italians, the Japanese, the Kiwis, the Norwegians, the Poles, the Portuguese, the Russians, the Scots, the Spanish, the Swedes, the Swiss, the Welsh, um, and the Albanians. So there are lots of different uh, xenophobes guides to different countries. I've got French... Uh, Japanese and English. And and they're supposed to be uh, tongue-in-cheek. They're not supposed to be racist. They're supposed to be funny. Uh, that's the idea anyway. Now, I guess I should start by reading a little bit from the Xenophobes Guide to the English. Um, uh, 
and um, the Xenophobe's Guide, an, an, an irreverent look at the beliefs and foibles of nations, almost guaranteed to cure xenophobia. That's the idea. So if you are a xenophobe, you should read these books and it hopefully will cure you of your xenophobia. Um, so let me just open the Xenophobe's Guide to the English. These books always begin with uh, little paragraphs about how these countries see themselves, how they think other people see them, how other people actually see them and how they would like to be seen. So this is how the English see themselves according to the Xenophobe's Guide to the English. And it goes like this. And by the way, this this uh, series is published by Globe uh, Peco Press. Um, and you can find them all on Amazon, the Xenophobe's Guide. So how do the English see themselves? Well, apparently the English see themselves as law-abiding, courteous, tolerant, decent, generous, gallant, steadfast and fair. They also take pride in their self precatory sense of humour, which they see as the ultimate proof of their good nature. Though they put themselves down in public, in their heart of hearts, they believe the English to be superior to all other nations and are convinced that all other nations secretly know that they are. In a perfect world, the English suspect that everyone would like to be more like them. Geography reinforces this belief as the inhabitants look out to the sea all around them from the fastness of their tight little island. Nobody would ever question the aptness of the newspaper headline, Fog in the Channel, Continent Cut Off. The English are convinced that the best things in life originate in England or have been improved there. Even the weather, though it may not be pleasant, is far more interesting than anyone else's and is always full of surprises. I think it's kind of true, that's that stuff. There is that sense. But I'm sure that every nation feels like that, don't they? They feel somehow in the heart that they are kind of, yeah, we're, the, we're basically the best, aren't we? Um, now, this is how other people actually see the English. Um, to outsiders, the English are intellectually impenetrable which means that no one really understands uh, the way we think. Um, they express little emotion. Their culinary appreciation is incomprehensible, which means that our, our taste, our sense of taste for food is impossible to understand. And the pleasures of life seem to pass them by as they put up with shoddiness and discomfort. So apparently we don't really enjoy our lives. We just, you know, ever, our lives are basically uncomfortable and, and badly put together and we just put up with it. Uh, apparently the English are seen as hidebound, prejudiced and uncooperative, a people largely unmoved by developments in the world around them who live in a world of costume dramas shrouded in grey skies sustained by deep fried sausages. So basically the rest of the world see us as being old-fashioned, uh, living in bad weather um, uh, with old-fashioned uh, like uh, stuff on TV, and we eat really unhealthy food. Okay, so there you go. Just a couple of sections from uh, the Xenophobe's Guide to the English. That one now on the floor. Uh, now I've got the Xenophobe's Guide to the French. Um, it's you know it's a similar kind of story basically. Let's see um, uh, let's see what they have to say about uh, about the French. So this is how the French see themselves. The French see themselves as the only truly civilised people in the world. Long ago, they discovered the absolutes, the certainties of life, and thus they feel they have the duty to enlighten the rest. On anything that matters, they consider themselves experts. 
Anything in which they're not expert, experts doesn't really matter. All life, all energy, is a grand force of nature, which they embrace wholeheartedly. They see glory in what others regard as defeat. They may lose an empire, Algeria, or a rugby match, uh, but they know that France will rise again more glorious than before. The French would never say, poor old France, in the way that the English have been saying, poor old England, uh, day in, day out for the last couple of thousand years. The French have no time for national or corporate self-pity. Instead, the cry is, on, on, on to the barricades, on to the next election, on to the next invention and negotiation. There is a childlike enthusiasm and optimism about the way French view fate and destiny. All will be well, they believe, simply because everything French is the best in the world. Playing second fiddle is not a French pastime, and so on and so forth. Um, how do other people see the French? Okay, here's how other people see the French according to this book. And by the way, feel free to disagree with anything that you hear uh, in this uh, section here, okay? This is how other people see the French. Views vary. Uh, shrewd, sceptical, susceptible to women. But in the eyes of many, the trouble with the French is that they are inconsistent. This is because others fail to see that the French decide all big issues on the basis of self-interest. Uh, a feature of peasant ideology. This trait is to be seen in all aspects of French life. They exasperate with their lumbering approach to the delights of a market economy, but exhilarate with their uh, chaotic flights of fantasy. Okay, fine. You can read it yourself if you want to learn, learn more. Uh, I should just read a couple of pages from the Japanese one as well, because uh, I know I've got lots of Japanese uh, listening to this. Um, or let's see, here, this is what Japanese people think about other people. So uh, here's how the Japanese see people from other countries. And again, feel free to disagree with this because that French one, right, I got that as a Christmas gift once uh, from a friend. And I it was given to me at a party. And I opened it and I was like, oh, the xenophobes guy to the French. Oh, you know, it's quite funny, you know, a little bit sort of potentially borderline racist, but when it's not funny, but it's still quite amusing. And, you know, we started passing it around and reading it. And a French friend of mine, who I really like, uh, very funny, he started reading it. And he was like, this is just racist. So he didn't really see the joke. Um, and you might feel the same way. Anyway, this is what uh, apparently Japanese people think about other nations. So to the Japanese, all non-Japanese uh, non people are gaijin, foreigners, who are not and never can be the same as they are. The term foreigner complex crops up frequently in Japan. In this context, the foreigner is the typical Westerner of the tall, long-legged, uh, more often than not blonde and blue-eyed variety. For ages, in contrast to the West's, why can't they be like us, the Japanese have asked themselves, why can't we be like them? Many will dye their hair brown or wear contact lenses which make their eyes look blue. To be honest, I hardly ever saw that when I was living there, but still. Some women buy special creams to make mm, to change the colour of their skin. C uh, considered the ultimate in visual desirability, Western models, actors and rock stars are recruited by the media to advertise everything from cars to cough drops. Anything with a Western appearance is regarded as trendy or prestigious. Producers use this fact to sell their products and new gadgets are introduced as being already popular in Europe or America. Blah, blah, blah. Is this really true? Uh, so, um, apparently they think that the Western stuff is all great. Not always the case. Not always the case. 
Um, uh huh. This um, how, how the Japanese would like to be seen. Despite their self-effacing appearance, most Japanese are proud at heart. They would like to be seen as an orderly, hard-working people, capable of meeting expectations, of being well up to every task. But their ideal is to be super clever in secret. So they're, they're ninjas, basically. We knew that already, didn't we? Uh, the wise hawk hides its claws, as the saying goes. The reverse is the ultimate indignity. To this end, they push themselves in their work, their sport, even their leisure. When the world criticised them for working too hard, they produced television programmes on how to enjoy a leisurely weekend, which everyone watched with intensity at the weekends. For fear of being seen as lazy, people will not take holidays. In desperation, companies wanting to encourage employees to go on holiday found that the only way they could persuade them to take even a few days off a year was to shut down the factories completely, condemning thousands of workaholics to miserable holidays racked by withdrawal symptoms. So apparently Japanese people are workaholics. Okay, um, so that's the, uh, the, the Xenophobes Guide series, which is kind of reasonably funny. But, you know, it, I always find that they're kind of stretch into the kind of stereotype area a bit too easily. But it's, you know, it's fairly enjoyable. Um, what else? Okay, I was in Oxford um, during the Christmas holiday. <coughs> uh, the wife and I uh, took a trip to Oxford. And um, while we were there, uh, we did a bit of shopping and I bought some books. Books which I still haven't read. But there's a particular... Um, series of books uh, that I really like because I, I love little books. I love small books that you can fit in your pocket. And there's a, a series of books by Oxford, which is called A Very Short Introduction. And so, you know, these are kind of academic books and they have a short introduction to, and then lots and lots of different uh, subjects. Like, for example, a short introduction to accounting or advertising or African history or Alexander the Great or American history or um, uh, anarchism or ancient Egypt or the Anglo-Saxons or animal rights, anxiety, archaeology, architecture, aristocracy, Aristotle, art history, art theory, astrobiology, atheism, Augustine, Australia, autism, the avant-garde, and the Aztecs, and that's just the A's. So, a short introduction. And the book is, you know, it, it's it's fairly short. They're kind of small, enough to go in a back pocket of your jeans, and they basically have a, you know, a, a, a short introduction in an academic sense to all of those different subjects. The one I've got in my hand here is a short introduction to the British Empire. Um, and, uh, you know, the chapters are basically... Uh, defining the empire, the key characteristics of the empire, the way in which the British Empire expanded over the years, the rise and fall of the British Empire, uh, the way in which the, the story of the British Empire has been written, uh, and the legacies of the British Empire. It's very, very interesting. So it's basically history, the history of the British Empire. Um, and here's a little paragraph from the book. It goes like this. At its height, the British Empire comprised over 13 million square miles, nearly one quarter of the Earth's land surface, and its merchant, marine and navy were supreme at sea. Following the acquisition of new colonies in Africa, the Middle East and the Pacific in the wake of the First World War, Britain was responsible for ruling 500 million people, over a fifth of the Earth's population. 
measured on indicators of power such as political, economic and strategic reach, the British Empire was the world's sole superpower. It retained this position until the Second World War, a conflict that accelerated trends that were already making the possession of colonies increasingly anachronistic and diminishing Britain's and Europe's standing in the international system. These economic, political and cultural trends and the dramatic changes caused by prolonged global conflict and a rising tide of nationalism led to the demise of the British Empire during a decolonisation spree that witnessed the birth of scores of new nation-states in the four decades following 1945. The aberration that had been Europe's moment of global preeminence in which Britain had been to the fore had passed. So there you go. And this is series is really interesting and it's very sort of, um, um, what's the word for it? Accessible. A very accessible series of books about a number of different fascinating uh, um, academic subjects. Right, that one's on the floor now and we move on to book five in my list. And this one is another bit of non-fiction and this book is called 59 Seconds, Think a Little, Change a Lot. And it's uh, written by Professor Richard Wiseman. I mentioned Professor Richard Wiseman once more on this podcast. Do you remember when? Uh, I talked about Richard Wiseman once in an episode about jokes because uh, Richard Wiseman is the professor who once uh, did a big academic study to find out what was the most what was the, the the funniest joke in the world. You can go back into the archive and find my episodes called Telling Jokes in English if you want to know more about that. So 59 seconds, think a little, change a lot. Uh, the idea of this one, as it says on the back, uh, it says, think a little, change a lot. Discover why even thinking about going to the gym can help you keep in shape. Uh, uh, learn how pot plants make you more creative and find out why putting a pencil between your teeth instantly makes you feel happier. Psychologist Professor Richard Wiseman exposes modern-day mind myths promoted by the self-help industry and presents a fresh approach to change that helps people achieve their aims and ambitions in minutes, not months. From mood to memory, persuasion to procrastination and resilience to relationships, Wiseman outlines the research supporting this new science of rapid change and describes how these quick and uh, quirky techniques can be incorporated into every everyday life. So essentially, this is a book of little techniques that you can use to improve your life in various ways. And um, I thought that I would talk to you a little bit about procrastination, okay? Now, we know what procrastination is. That's when you put things off. We all do it. I know for sure. I mean, I'm very good at procrastination. I'm extremely good at that. Um, I'm very talented at putting things off. I've been putting off, for example, my English for Professional uh, Situations course for bloody ages. Um, I'm an excellent talent at procrastination. I imagine you are as well, because we're all born with an innate ability to procrastinate, aren't we? Yes, we are. Like, you know, finding, like, oh, I'll just do it later. I'll do this first. I'll, I think I'll clean up the garage before I do this this work. Or, I know, let's just check my inbox one more time. Or let's just go onto Facebook for another nine hours. Um, you know, we're all very good at procrastination. So, um, this... Um, this little 
section from the book is from uh, the chapter on motivation, and it's called Procrastination and the Ziganik Effect. And this is how it goes. Research suggests that 24% of people identify themselves as chronic procrastinators. Presumably, this figure underestimates the scale of the problem, given that it can be only based on people who completed the questionnaires on time. Regardless of the actual figure, it's obvious that procrastination can be a major problem, causing people to fail to pay bills on time, not complete projects within deadlines, and make inadequate preparations for important exams and interviews. Procrastination is a surprisingly complex phenomenon and can stem from a variety of causes, including the fear of failure, perfectionism, low levels of self-control, a tendency to see projects as a whole rather than breaking them into smaller parts, being prone to boredom, feeling that life is too short to worry about seemingly unimportant tasks, and an inability to accurately estimate how long it takes to do things. However, the problem can be overcome using a technique first uncovered during an informal observation of waiters. According to research law, in the 1920s, a young Russian psychology graduate named Bloomer Ziganik found herself in a Viennese cafe taking tea with her supervisor. Being students of human nature, they were watching how the waiters and customers behaved and happened to notice a curious phenomenon. When a customer asked for the bill, the waiters could easily remember the food that had been ordered. However, if the customer paid the bill, but then queried it a few moments later, the waiters struggled to remember anything about the order. It seemed that the act of paying for the meal brought a sense of closure in the waiter's mind and erased the order from their memories. Uh, Zeganik was curious and returned to the laboratory to test an idea. She asked people to carry out a number of simple tasks, such as stacking up counters or placing toys in a box. But for some tasks, she stopped the participants before they'd finished. At the end of the experiment, the participants were told to describe all the tasks that they'd done. As with her observations of waiters, Zeganik found that the unfinished tasks stuck in people's minds and so were far easier to remember. According to Ziganik, starting any activity causes your mind to experience a kind of psychic anxiety. Once the activity is done and dusted, your mind breathes an unconscious sigh of relief, and all is forgotten. However, if you are somehow prevented from completing the activity, your anxious mind quietly nags away until you've finished what you started. What has this got to do with procrastination? Well, procrastinators frequently put off starting certain activities because they are overwhelmed by the size of the job in front of them. However, if they can be persuaded or can persuade themselves to work on the activity for just a few minutes, they often feel an urge to see it through to completion. Research shows that just Research shows that the just a few minutes rule is a highly effective way of beating procrastination and could also help people finish the most arduous of tasks. It's also a perfect application of Zyganik's work. Those few minutes of initial activity create an anxious brain that refuses to rest until the job is finished. Okay, so I guess what we can learn from this is that basically you're more likely to finish a job 
if you work on it for just a few minutes, that it's the, it's starting the job that's the most difficult part. And if you can break through that first bit, if you can be persuaded to start, you're much more likely to finish it. Because unfinished work sticks with you, it preys on your mind, it makes you feel stressed. And, uh, and as a result, it's going to be in your brain and you're going to finish it. So starting is the most difficult part. But if you, um, if you get it done and then you break it down into chunks, you're much more likely to finish it. There you go. Uh, and, you know, that's just one little uh, section from the book. Each chapter contains not just little bits of commentary like that, but also specific tasks for you. And if you follow the tasks, it helps you to deal with different aspects of your life. For example, um, you know, how to achieve things or how to motivate yourself or how to finish plans that you've, that you've started. Okay, 59 seconds, Think a Little, Change a Lot by Professor Richard Wiseman. Really interesting. And it's on the floor. I've got another book in the Very Short Introduction series because it's a small book. Oxford, Very Short Introduction to William Shakespeare. And I, and by the way, I haven't read any of these books. These are all books which I'm going to read. I've kind of flicked through them a little bit. You know, I've, I've flicked through them a bit and I've, I've selected some bits that I can share with you, but I haven't properly been through them and read from them. Um, so this one is by Stanley Wells and it's a very short introduction by William Shakespeare published by Oxford. And um, I guess what I'm going to do is just read uh, one paragraph from the preface to the book. Um, William Shakespeare. Why Shakespeare? Why why should we know anything about William Shakespeare? This is a subject that I would like to do a whole episode of the podcast about because I think it's worth uh, going into in more detail. Like who is Shakespeare? Why is he such a big deal? Uh, you know, why do people talk about him so much? Why is he so highly regarded? And also, what about the effect that he had on the English language? Well, let me just read a paragraph from uh, a short introduction, a very short introduction to William Shakespeare by Stanley Wells. And it goes like this. Most people of any education, uh, wherever they may be, have at least heard of Shakespeare. They may know that he was an English poet and playwright who lived quite a long time ago, but is famous today. And they're likely to be aware that children often learn about him in school. They probably remember the titles of some of his plays, Romeo and Juliet and Hamlet, at least perhaps A Midsummer Night's Dream and Macbeth. They may know a few phrases from them, for example, to be or not to be, or Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? I am a man more sinned against than sinning, or once more unto the breach, dear friends. Even if they are a little bit hazy about which play they come from, or whether perhaps it was someone else who wrote them. Possibly they've visited the Tudor house known as Shakespeare's birthplace in Stratford-upon-Avon. They may have come across a rumour that he was in fact an imposter and that someone else, probably an aristocrat, wrote plays for him. Some people may have had to learn speeches from Shakespeare plays by heart. Um, such a task may have been imposed on them as a punishment. They may have had to take part in a classroom reading or act in a scene from one of the plays in front of their schoolfellows. Possibly at a wedding or a civil partnership ceremony, they've heard someone read the sonnets that begins, Let me not uh, to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Perhaps they've been taken to see one of the plays performed by amateurs or by a professional company or on film and have enjoyed it more than they expected. 
On the other hand, they may have sat through it in mystified boredom while longing to get to the pub before closing time. As they got older, such people may have become scientists or lawyers or artisans or businessmen or nurses or shop assistants and have felt that Shakespeare was at most a thing of their past, just something that you had to do at school and now read about from time to time in the newspapers or switched off when it came up on the television. But then something may have happened to stir up their interest. They may have gone to see a Shakespeare play or film to keep someone else company, or because a famous film or television star, maybe a Helen Mirren or a Kevin Spacey, was acting in it, and uh, have been surprised to find that they understood and even enjoyed it more than they expected. They may have got to know someone for whom Shakespeare was a passion. Perhaps they have felt a bit out of things, because a form of entertainment that clearly means a lot to other people was was a closed book to them. They may even have been a bit abashed by reading that a character in Jane Austen's novel Mansfield Park said Shakespeare one gets acquainted with without knowing how it is a part of an Englishman's constitution. His thoughts and beauties are so spread abroad that one touches them everywhere. One is intimate with them by instinct. No man of any brain can open at a good part of one of his plays without falling into the flow of his meaning immediately. Their interest may have been sparked enough for them to want to know more. These are the kinds of people for whom this book is written. They could lead happy and useful lives without Shakespeare, just as they could also sail through life in ignorance of quantum physics or Buddhism or Greek tragedy or Noah drama or Doctor Who or Strictly Come Dancing or The Rolling Stones. No one has a moral duty to like Shakespeare. On the other hand, there are many good reasons why it's worth allowing him into your life. To ignore his work suggests an indifference to a major source of intellectual and spiritual enrichment, and it limits one's response to many other areas of human experience. I hope in this short book about the man and his writings to persuade readers who were previously indifferent to Shakespeare what that it's worth getting to know more about him to try to understand what it is about his plays and poems that causes them to mean so much to so many people. In short, to discover what all the fuss is about. So there you go. A short introduction to William Shakespeare by Stanley Wells. Now on the floor. All right, then, let's move on to another one. And this is a book that my mum gave me for Christmas. And it's another fairly short book that would fit in a, in a pocket. And this is uh, from another series, but this one by Penguin, uh, the publishing company Penguin. And this one is uh, a series called Great Ideas. Um, <clears throat> and um, and the, the way that the series is, is described on the back of the book is like this. It goes, throughout history, some books have changed the world. They've transformed the way that we see ourselves and each other. They've inspired debate, dissent, war and revolution. They've enlightened, outraged, provoked and comforted. They have enriched lives and destroyed them. Now Penguin brings you the works of the great thinkers, pioneers, radicals and visionaries whose ideas shook civilization and helped to make us who we are. So... We've got in this series things like uh, Seneca uh, on the shortness of life, St. Augustine, the Confessions of a Sinner, um, Niccolo Machiavelli, the Prince, Jonathan Swift, A Tale of a Tub, um, Edward Gibbon, the Christians and the Fall of Rome, Thomas Paine, Common Sense, um, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, the Communist Manifesto, 
Charles Darwin on natural selection, Frederick Nietzsche, Why Am I So Wise, Virginia Woolf, A Room of One's Own, uh, Sigmund Freud, Civilization and Its Discontents, and George Orwell, Why I Write. But the one I've got in my hands here is called Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Uh, the meditations of the great Roman philosopher Emperor Marcus Aurelius are simple yet profound profound works of Stoic philosophy that continue to offer guidance and consolation to many with their eloquence, wisdom and humility. So this is a book that my mum loves and if you have listened to uh, that episode of this podcast called Marooned With My Music where I spoke to mum about the books and music that she would take with her to a desert island, this was one of the books that she would bring with her because it contains this kind of comforting set of uh, meditations, lots of wisdom and if I open the page to number 131, here's, a, here's an interesting little, little um, nugget for you. And this one says this, Reflect often how all the life of today is a repetition of the past and observe that it also uh, presages what is to come. Review the many complete dramas and their settings, all so similar, which you've known in your own experience or from bygone history. The whole court circle of Hadrian, for example, or the court of Antonius, um, or the courts of Philip, Alexander and Croesus. The performance is always the same. It is only the actors who change. Interesting that. That's the idea that, you know, basically history repeats itself. And, you know, you only need to look at sort of the political world to see the way in which that's perhaps happening recently so there you go that book is full of little things like that little uh, little words of wisdom and that is um meditations by marcus aurelius which is now respectfully placed on the floor of the room next to me moving on and still non-fiction i i've just realized that i tend to read non-fiction it seems <coughs> uh, certainly in this pile there is some fiction coming but this bit of non-fiction is a, is a book that I bought in California and I still haven't got round to reading. And it's called Mo, Be Mo Meta Blues, uh, The World According to Questlove. And it's written by Amir Questlove Thompson. Who is Questlove? Questlove is the drummer in a really great group called The Roots. Uh, you might know about The Roots. I don't know if you've ever heard of The Roots. The Roots are basically like a hip-hop soul group from the from the usa you might know them because they are the the uh the house band for jimmy fallon's tv show is that called late night with jimmy fallon i can't remember the name of the show but jimmy fallon's entertainment show he the, probably the best thing about the show to be honest is the the house band and that's the roots and they are absolutely brilliant um and basically mo meta blues is uh, the drummer's uh, book. And uh, the drummer from The Roots is this guy called Questlove. And he's a really interesting person. Um, I mean, this is what it says on the back of the book. It goes, Amir Questlove Thompson is many things. Virtuoso, uh, virtuoso drummer, producer, arranger, late night with Jimmy Fallon, musical director, DJ, composer, and tireless tweeter. He's one of our most ubiquitous cultural tastemakers. And in this book, his first book, he reveals his own formative experiences from growing up in the 1970s in West Philadelphia as the son of a 1950s doo-wop singer to finding his own way through the music world and ultimately co-founding and rising up with The Roots, also known as the last hip-hop band on earth. 
so there we go. It's just like a memoir, basically, by Questlove. Um, and uh, what can I read from this? Uh, let me see. Okay, this is a section <clears throat> from the book where he's talking about how he discovered uh, a kind of new musical direction. Okay, um, so this is Questlove uh, from his book. Um, it goes like this. Uh, there are spiritual experiences that aren't necessarily religious experiences, even if they take place in a church. I know because I had a moment like that in London and it changed my life forever. Early in our stay there, I fell in love with a South African girl. We spent lots of time together right off the bat, but after a little while, she was called away by the election in her home country. I was hurt, but what could you do? She felt it was her duty to go home and participate in the historic vote to end apartheid. And it was hard to make the case that hanging out with me the rest of the summer was more important. Before she left, she made me promise that I would go to see a South African DJ named Abba Shanti. He performed at a place called House of Roots, which was a club that had previously been a church. The name seemed like a nice coincidence, maybe part of a divine plan, and so the and so the whole band went to see him. I went with special interest, not just because of the girl, but because I'd been a DJ of one kind or another since I was 11 years old. But that one night changed everything I knew about DJing. Up to that moment, it was mainly about being a human iPod. You served up the best songs to people that they could imagine, and some that they couldn't imagine. After seeing Abba Shanti, I realised that a DJ could not only have a personality, but be a personality, and that he could be a person with power over the emotions of others. He made me see that it was a, psych it was a psychological and even sacred responsibility all in one night. We went to the House of Roots and Abba Shanti was up at the pulpit, but with his back facing towards the audience. He was facing the cross, flanked by absolutely huge speakers. Unlike almost any other DJ I've ever seen, he only used one turntable, and though that seemed like a limitation at first, it turned out to be the greatest thing about him, because it was so integral to his sense of theatre and control. When he finished one record, the suspense of what he was going to play next was almost too much to bear. But Abba Shanti's greatest contribution to my life and to my band and to my music was the way he handled sound. He did this trick before he played records where he went to the control board and turned everything way down. He took all the lows off, all the low mids off and all the highs off. And ladies and gents, if you're not sure what he's talking about, this is, this is me now taking all the lows off uh, my voice here. So this is me with all the lows off. Can you hear the difference? And this is me with all the lows up. So that's this is me with all the lows off. This is me with all the middles off. And this is me with all the highs off. You see the way it changes the sound? That's me bringing the high back up. That's me bringing the middle back up. And then this is me bringing the bass or the lows off. So uh, back up, I mean. So what this DJ was is he brought all of the lows uh, off. Uh, and then he took all the, the, the low mids off. And then he took all the highs off. Then he'd pick up the microphone with his right hand and extended his left arm. The closer the microphone got to his mouth, the more the audience was screaming. His voice echoed deeply, and he sounded like a younger Lee Scratch Perry as he went through the basic roots reggae call-outs. Jar Rastafari, and so on. Then he'd reached down with his left arm into his box of 45s. 
It was a simple thing, bending his arm down to pick up a record, but it drove the crowd wild. Think Michael Jackson. That's the level of showmanship he had. He picked a record, put the B-side onto the turntable, cleaned the needle, and then let it drop onto the vinyl. Because of the way he had set the board, all you heard was the upper end, a tinny, ear-piercing version ear-piercing version of the record clustered around the high sounds. The B-side was usually the instrumental version of the song, and he'd halt it midway, turn up the high mids and then the low mids, and finish playing it that way. Then he took the record off and flipped it, now the A-side. The real song was ready to go, and that meant he was ready for the payoff moment, which was when his arm went to the bass. He turned that up, and boom! The bottom dropped into the room and everyone was physically jolted. I'd never experienced anything like it. Now, listeners, do you know what he's talking about here? You know that experience when you're at a live music show or a DJ is playing music through big speakers? You know what it feels like when the bass hits you? It's like it really hits your chest. You can feel the bass. It's physical. You know, it hits your chest. Sometimes you can even feel your hair moving if the bass is loud enough. You know, it's a real physical, palpable experience. Now, imagine turning all of the bass off the record and playing it so it's just the just the high-level sounds. And then, when the song comes in, whipping the bass all the way up and then, you know, it would really hit you right in the heart. Uh, that's what it was like. Um, and uh, Questlove says, I'd, I'd never experienced anything like it. And I wasn't the only one. The next day, I was talking to Rich and he, he had a look on his face like a new convert. That's what we have to do, he said. We have to be that loud. I want people to have a colonic when you guys perform. We tried it out at a place in Brighton. We were opening for Roy Ayers. Rich set all the levels and then boom, that was the arrival of the Roots. Since then, we've been every sound engineer's nightmare. Funk bands had dominated the 70s, but in the mid-90s, the loudest bands were rock groups that operated mostly in the high end. They needed guitar screech. We were a low-level, low-end concern almost entirely. I had a kick pedal, Hub played bass, Razel did beatboxing, and while most venues or even groups were opening for capped out, uh, most venues or even groups we were opening for capped out our decibels at about 118. We preferred to do more like 135 or 140. It was dominating, but it wasn't deafening. The low end registers differently somehow. It's a physical event. Okay, so that's Questlove talking about how he learned to incorporate the low end, the sub bass uh, in his live performances to great effect. So that is Mo Meta Blues, The World According to Questlove by Amir Questlove Thompson. Uh, now, on the floor. Um, let's move on to the next one. And this is a book which I've I've only read one story from this book so far, but I'm looking forward to reading the rest. And this is a book by H.P. Lovecraft. So now we're into the realm of fiction. H.P. Lovecraft. And the book is a selection of his stories, and it's called The Call of Cthulhu. The Call of Cthulhu and Other Weird Stories by H.P. Lovecraft. Now, do you know who H.P. Lovecraft is? According to the Wikipedia page for H.P. Lovecraft, uh, he was an American author who achieved posthumous fame through his influential works of horror fiction. So H.P. Lovecraft wrote sort of weird fantasy horror stories. He was virtually unknown and uh, published only in pulp magazines before he died in poverty 
1937, but he's now regarded as one of the most significant 20th century authors in his genre. Lovecraft was born in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, in the United States, where he spent most of his life. Among his most celebrated tales are The Call of Cthulhu and The Shadow in the Shadow Over Innsmouth, both canonical to the Cthulhu mythos. Lovecraft was never able to support himself from earnings as author and editor. He saw commercial success increasingly elude him in his latter period, partly because he lacked the confidence and drive to promote himself. He subsisted in progressively straightened uh, uh, circumstances in his last years. An inheritance was completely spent by the time he died at the age of 46. So this is one of those writers who struggled through his life, writing this work which was not recognised when he was alive. He, he lived in very difficult circumstances and he wrote this stuff that only later was considered to be great work. And it's gone on to influence um, uh, sort of... Um, it's it's gone on to influence similar uh, writing. the The whole genre of um, of of horror and fantasy has been seriously influenced by H. P. Lovecraft. Um, and according to Joyce Carol Oates, Lovecraft and Edgar Allan Poe in the nineteenth century uh, exerted an incalculable influence on succeeding generations of writers of horror fiction. Horror, fantasy and science fiction author Stephen King called Lovecraft the 20th century's greatest practitioner of the classic horror tale. Uh, Stephen King has made it clear in his semi-autobiographical non-fiction work Dance Macabre that Lovecraft was responsible for his own fascination with horror and the macabre and was the latest figure to influence his fiction writing. Uh, the largest figure, in, in fact, to influence his, his uh, fiction writing. So H.P. Lovecraft is a legendary and influential writer of uh, horror uh, stories. And I don't know if you're interested in this kind of thing, but this is the sort of stuff I like. I do like a good uh, 19th century horror story. I really do. I love this kind of stuff. Um, and um, I mean, let's see if I can just read a little section from it from you. I mean, it's it's really good stuff. It's scary, atmospheric, creepy stuff featuring these monsters that are not really fully explained. Uh, it's, it's great. I'm just going to read the opening uh, couple of paragraphs from one of the stories in this book, which is called Cool Air. Okay, Cool Air. And so this, these are the first two paragraphs of Cool Air. So it goes like this. You ask me to explain why I'm afraid of a draught of cool air, why I shiver more than others upon entering a cold room and seem nauseated and repelled when the chill of evening creeps through the heat of a mild autumn day. There are those who say I respond to cold as others do to a bad odour and I'm the last to deny this impression. What I will do is to relate the most horrible circumstance I've ever encountered, and leave it to you to judge whether or not this forms a suitable explanation of my peculiarity. It is a mistake to fancy that horror is associated inextricably with darkness, silence and solitude. I found it in the glare of mid-afternoon, in the clangour of a metropolis, and in the teeming midst of a shabby and commonplace rooming house with a prosaic landlady and two stalwart men by my side. In the spring of 1923, I secured some dreary and unprofitable magazine work. 
in the city of New York and began uh, and and being unable to pay any substantial rent began drifting from one cheap boarding establishment to another in search of a room which might con- combine the qualities of decent cleanliness endurable furnishings and very reasonable price it soon developed that i had only uh, it soon developed that i had only a choice between different evils but after a time i came upon a house in west 14th street which disgusted me much less than the others i had sampled uh, that's just the opening two paragraphs of the story. So he sets it up by explaining why he's so scared of cool air and why he shivers uh, upon entering a cold room and why he feels sick and repelled when the chill of an evening creeps through the heat of an autumn day. And he reacts uh, to cold in the same way that other people act uh, reacts to a bad smell and then he begins the story i you know i love that kind of atmospheric writing and i wonder what it is that what, what horrible experience that he had that has caused him to uh, develop this phobia of cold air um there you go hp lovecraft the call of cthulhu and other weird stories some of the most influential horror and fantasy writing uh now on the floor respectfully Uh, Moving on. Now, I talked to you in the previous episode briefly about the idea of a page turner. These are those books that um, are written in a way that make you desperate to turn the page and find out what happens next. And we're talking about probably murder mysteries or thrillers, uh, detective stories, things like that. Now, what I've got here is a book called The Girl on the Train by Paula Hawkins. Uh, The Girl on the Train was recently turned into a movie. The movie didn't do very well in the box office. But the book itself is a global bestseller, a massive hit, this book. And it's been in the, you know, the top 10 charts in the UK for, for a couple of years now. It's a massive hit, this book. I haven't read it. My wife read it. She bought it in the airport at Christmas and started reading it and she couldn't put it down. Uh, she just couldn't put it down. Um, and um, she flew through it in a couple of weeks and English isn't her first language. So I think this is the kind of book that you could read, okay? Um, so strong re- strong recommendation from me to you, Paula Hawkins, The Girl on the Train. And it's a global bestseller. And this is what's written on the back of the book. Uh, Every day the same until today. Rachel catches the same commuter train every morning. She knows it will wait at the same signal each time, overlooking a row of back gardens. She's even started to feel like she knows the people who live in one of the houses. Their life, as she sees it, is perfect. If only Rachel could be that happy. And then she sees something shocking. And in one moment, everything changes. Now Rachel has a chance to become a part of the lives she's only watched from afar. Now they'll see she's much more than just the girl on the train. This has been described as nothing short of sensational by the Daily Mail. Stephen King said that the book kept him up most of the night. Uh, The Times newspaper said, my vote for unreliable narrator of the year. And the Mail on Sunday said that it was chock full of chilling twists and turns. So there you go. Paula Hawkins, The Girl on the Train. It's kind of a mystery story, which apparently you can't put down. Once you start reading it, that's it. You can't put it down. Uh, Let me just read, what, the first couple of paragraphs from the book to give you a sample. Uh, The first chapter is called Rachel. 
Friday the 5th of July 2015 and it's set in London and it goes and you can imagine that Rachel is sitting on a train looking out of the window and it goes like this morning there is a pile of clothing on the side of the train tracks light blue cloth a shirt perhaps jumbled up with something dirty white it's probably rubbish part of a load of fly tipped uh, into the scrubby little wood up the bank it could have been left behind by the engineers who work this part of the track they're here often enough or it could be something else my mother used to tell me that i had an overactive imagination tom said that too i can't help it i catch sight of those discarded scraps a dirty t-shirt or a lonesome shoe and all i can think of is the other shoe and the feet that fitted into them the train jolts and scrapes and screeches back into motion the little pile of clothes disappears from view and we trundle on towards London, moving at a brisk jogger's pace. Someone in the seat behind me gives a sigh of helpless irritation. <sighs> the 8.04 slow train from Ashbury to Euston contests the patience of the most seasoned commuter. The journey is supposed to take 54 minutes, but it rarely does. This section of the track is ancient, decrepit, beset with signalling problems, and never-ending engineering works. The train crawls along. It judders past warehouses and water towers, bridges and sheds, past modest Victorian houses, their backs turned squarely to the track. My head leaning against the carriage window, I watch these houses roll past me like a tracking shot in a film. I see them as others do not. Even their owners probably don't see them from this perspective. Twice a day, I'm offered a view into their lives just for a moment. There's something comforting about the sight of strangers safe at home. Someone's phone is ringing. An incongruously joyful and upbeat song. They're slow to answer. It jingles on and on around me. I can feel my slow my, I can feel my fellow commuters shift in their seats, rustle their newspapers, tap their computers. The train lurches and sways around the bend slowing as it approaches a red signal. I try not to look up. I try to read the free newspaper I was handed on my way into the station. But the words blur in front of my eyes. Nothing holds my interest. In my head, I can still see that little pile of clothes lying on the edge of the track, abandoned. There you go. That's the first couple of pages of Paula Hawkins' The Girl on the Train, available from all good bookshops now on the floor um moving on here's another book i got for christmas i think from my mum and dad and this one is called david bowie the last interview and other conversations and it's simply a collection of interviews with david bowie it's published by melville house publishing um and it goes like this in these interviews collected from throughout his fabled career including his first when he was 16 as well as his last decades later David Bowie discusses his childhood in the rough streets of South London, songwriting, his problems with drug abuse, the influence of Andy Warhol, sexuality, his movies, fashion, working with Brian Eno, his friendship with John Lennon, and more. Ever articulate with a wicked wit always at hand, Bowie shows here why he was always considered ahead of his time, both in art making and in cultural commentary. So uh, I'm just going to read like a little thing from this uh, which is about Bowie talking about his relationship with his wife this is from an interview um, he did 
with who? Uh, the last interview. This is from the last interview he ever did uh, with uh, Bust Magazine in 2000. And it was actually an interview uh, with Iman, his wife. Iman, his second wife, was a beautiful model and a fascinating person. And I think Bowie was deeply, deeply in love with him. Um, and I think Iman was the one who asked them questions, but it's not obvious. Anyway, um, it starts like this with the question, why do men shy away from being glamorous? And Bowie said, I have no time for glamour. It seems a ridiculous thing to strive for. I couldn't care less. A clean pair of shoes should serve quite well enough. And the next question, what didn't you, what didn't you like about Iman at first that you've grown to love? And Bowie's answer, the fact that one in four telephone conversations was conducted in Somali, Arabic or Italian. I found it frustrating that I had no idea what she was talking about to her friends. Uh, being British, I expect everyone to converse in English. It was something of a rude awakening. Now I enjoy trying to figure out the odd word and I make up my own imagined subject matter. Of you and Iman, who's the better cook? Well, I burn water. Iman is a superb cook. Our son and daughter both cook very well. I'm stricken with shame that I never bothered to learn. Oh, I could boil an egg and I can make radioactive coffee. What do you think makes relationships between men and women work? Complete and, gen complete and absolute generosity with the duvet. The realisation that the differences between you will be the key to love as they will become more apparent as the relationship grows. These are the things to be treasured above all else. The similarities will take care of themselves. All right. I like that bit there about, you know, the key to making a relationship work. I think that's really interesting. Uh, and he talks about, first of all, complete and absolute generosity with the duvet. That's relating to, you know, that experience of when you're in bed and your wife or husband or your partner wants to steal the duvet. Now, you know, don't be too possessive with it. You've got to be generous with the duvet. So basically, that just means being generous. Um, but also understanding that the differences between you are the key to love, that you've got to celebrate the differences uh, and, you know, become fascinated with the differences between you and treasure the differences and the things that are similar will take care of themselves but you have to celebrate and treasure the differences between you just one little bit of wisdom from that book about um david bowie's interviews now in a little pile on the floor i've got to move a bit, a bit more quickly here i've got one two three four five more books to do and i'm going to go through them really fast uh this one is um Another gift that I was given, and it's by Jack Kerouac, that uh, writer from the beat generation of writers in America in the 50s and 60s. Uh, this is the guy who wrote On the Road. I uh, talked about On the Road uh, during the California Road Trip uh, series of episodes I did uh, two years ago. And this one is called Sartori in Paris. And <clears throat> on the back of the book, it says this. When Jack Kerouac, spiritual father of the Beat Generation, came to Paris in search of the origins of his ancient Breton name, he embarked on an odyssey of adventures that was to excite readers for years to come. In ten delightful, head-spinning days, Kerouac wandered the streets uh, of Paris and encountered its charismatic people. In this absorbing book, Kerouac recounts his fascinating experiences, ranging from a meeting with a faded French beauty in a Montparnasse gangster bar, 
to a surrealistic conversation with his razor-nosed Breton namesake. Funny and sad in turn, but always enlightening, this is the story of Kerouac's sudden awakening, his sudden illumination, his Sartori in Paris. Uh, and the page I've got here I've opened is just chapter 10, which is described as being a strange chapter. And it's just, you know, him talking about his experience of being in in, uh, in France, I think in Paris. And I'm just going to read a little bit from it. So uh, here we go. Not only that, uh, not only that, but you can't get a good night's sleep in Par- in France. What? What, 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 what? Uh, all right, anyway. Uh, not only that, but you can't get a night's sleep in France. They're so lousy and noisy at 8 a.m., screaming over fresh bread. It would make abomination weep. Buy that. Their strong hot coffee and croissant and crackling French bread and Breton butter. God, where's my Alsatian beer? While looking for the library, incidentally, a gendarme in the Place de la Concorde told me that Rue de Richelieu, street of the National Library, not far from where I live, actually. Uh, He told me that Rue de Richelieu was that way, pointing. And because he was an officer, I was afraid to say, what? No, because I knew it was in the opposite direction somewhere. Here he is, some kind of sergeant or other, who certainly ought to know the streets of Paris, giving an American tourist a bum steer. If you give someone a bum steer, it means you kind of give them wrong direction, sending them in in the wrong direction. Or did he believe I was a wise guy Frenchman pulling his legs since my French is French? But no, he points in the direction of one of de Gaulle's security buildings and sends me there, maybe thinking, that's the National Library, all right. Ha, 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 ha. Maybe they'll shoot down the Quebec rat. No idea what he's talking about there. Who knows? Any Parisian middle-aged gendarme ought to know where Rue de Richelieu is. But thinking he may be right, and I'd made a mistake studying the Paris map back home, I do go in the direction he points, afraid to go any other, and go down the upper spate of the Champs-Élysées, then cut across the, the damp green park and across Rue Gabriel to the back of an important government building of some kind, where suddenly I see a sentry box, and out of it steps a guard with a bayonet in full Republican guard regalia, like Napoleon with a cockatoo hat, and he snaps to attention and holds up his bayonet at present arms. But it's not for me, really. It's for a sudden black limousine full of bodyguards and guys in black suits who receive a salute from the other sentrymen and zip on by. I stroll past the sentry bayonet and take out my plastic camel cigarette container to light a butt. Immediately, two strolling gendarmes are passing me in the opposite direction, watching every move I make. It turns out I'm not only lighting a cigarette butt, but how can they tell? Plastic and all that. And that is the marvellous tight security around big old de Gaulle's very palace, which is a few blocks away. I go down to the corner bar to have a cognac alone at a cool table by the open door. The bartender there is very polite and tells me exactly how to get to the library, right down Saint-Honoré, then across the Place de la Concorde, and then Rue Rivoli right uh, at the Louvre, and left onto Richelieu and to the library. Ding blast it. How can an American tourist who doesn't speak French get around at all, let alone me, to know the name of the street of the sentry box itself and have to order a map from the CIA? Anyway, it's just one of those books where someone is describing their experience of travelling around a new place 
and um, probably having some sort of self-discovery on the way. Uh, that is uh, Jack Kerouac Sartori in Paris, now on the floor next to me here. Right, uh, book number, what, 16, 15, 14, 13, is called The Ultimate Star Wars and Philosophy. You must unlearn what you have learned. And this is a, a book which is part of the Blackwell Philosophy and Pop Culture series, uh, which has been edited by William Irwin and Jason T. Erbrill and Kevin S. Decker. The Ultimate Star Wars and Philosophy. And this is a book that uses Star Wars as a means of exploring philosophy. Pop culture and philosophy. And in fact, I received two of these books at Christmas. I got one about Star Wars and I got one about The Terminator. And um, I love these books, I have to say. I absolutely adore these books because I love philosophy. I love, you know, exploring all these philosophical ideas. And I also love pop culture, as you know, including movies. And they've got, um, in this series, they've got books about Star Wars, The Terminator, The Matrix, The Big Lebowski, and uh, and various others. Um, and uh, they're really fun. Here's what's written on the back of this one about Star Wars. It goes like this. Is the Rebel Alliance a terrorist organisation? What's it like to be a Jedi? Was it immoral to destroy the second Death Star? Should Jar Jar Binks be held responsible for the rise of the Empire? And how should we understand the new Star Wars? The beloved epic space opera that fed the mythic landscape of a generation and arguably invented the modern concept of a media franchise, clearly much of the world has got Star Wars under its skin. The cultural significance of phrases like Luke, I am your father, I've got a bad feeling about this, and do or do not, there is no try, aren't merely pop culture cliches. They've penetrated academia, with hundreds of scholarly articles and books examining the deeper meaning of George Lucas's fantastical and philosophically rich creation. The Ultimate Star Wars and Philosophy presents an original set of expert essays by some of the brightest minds in the galaxy, exploring the deeper side of Star Wars and its expanded universe. There are new takes on familiar topics, like the nature of the Force, does it have to have a dark side, and a feminist critique of the portrayal of women. What is the deeper meaning in being chained to a slug? which is what happens to Princess Leia in Return of the Jedi. We examine the philosophical significance behind the impact of Star Wars on the real world as an important artefact of pop culture, the legacy of Joseph Campbell on the saga's mythical foundation, and offer a framework for understanding just what is canonical in Star Wars, giving fans good reason to assert once and for all that Han Solo shot first. With the book that you hold in your hands, the circle is now complete, and those who were once learners may start on the path towards becoming philosophical masters. May the force be with you. And so there are lots of different uh, chapters which are basically different philosophical nature, uh, different philosophical essays uh, about the Phantom Menace, about uh, Attack of the Clones, about the Re Revenge of the Sith and, uh, you know, the other uh, movies in the Star Wars uh, uh, universe. And we've got things like, you know, uh, why the Force has to have a dark side, what's it like to be a Jedi, um, um, are droids capable of thought, uh, can Chewbacca speak, which is exploration of Wittgenstein and the philosophy of language, um, uh, Star Wars emotion and the paradox of fiction, um, um, like my father before me, loss and redemption of fatherhood in Star Wars, 
And the little bit I've got here is about um, um, uh, morality in Star Wars uh, and the absence of morality in some aspects of the of the the, the story. And basically, I, I mean, I'm without reading through the passage because there isn't time. I'm just going to kind of summarise it that essentially the, the this passage, this passage, which is called Grey Areas. And it's all about Boba Fett, the character of Boba Fett, and how he occupies a kind of moral grey area uh, in the in the movies. How uh, Boba Fett is a fascinating character to us. That you know this character of Boba Fett. He's a uh, a bounty hunter who uh, Darth Vader uses to capture Han Solo uh, in Empire Strikes Back. Boba Fett is one of these characters that we don't really know very much about. He's not in the movies very often. He hardly has any any words to say, and yet he's one of the the franchise's most popular characters. And maybe the 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 interest that we have in Boba Fett is the way that he exists in this kind of moral grey area. Uh, and Star Wars, you know. Um, Star Wars is known for being morally black and white, isn't it? You know, it, it's it's the good guys versus the bad guys. It's the light side, light side. What's that? It's the light side of the force versus the dark side of the force. You know, so it's really a sort of black and white kind of universe morally. Uh, uh, but the most interesting parts of the Star Wars uh, universe are the moral grey areas. You know, those are the most interesting things about Star Wars. Like, you know, the question of whether Darth Vader, is is he really evil? Is he 100% evil or is there some good in him? Can Darth Vader be redeemed? Does Luke Skywalker have to use the dark side in order to win against the Emperor? You know, so it, it's, it's those moments where the light and the dark side of the Force mix together where... Um, the, the Star Wars franchise becomes the most interesting. And that's why Boba Fett is perhaps, you know, one of the, the most popular characters. That's what makes him so cool because he kind of operates in this uh, moral grey area. Um, there you go. Um, all right, so that's called The Ultimate Star Wars in Philosophy. You must unlearn what you have learned. And it's now in the pile on the floor. And the next one is uh, from the same series, uh, edited by William Irwin. And this one is called the. Uh, it's called Terminator and Philosophy. I'll be back, therefore I am. Um, and this one is, you know, the same concept, but using the Terminator movies. Now you might, you know, unless you are a fan, you might think the Terminator movies are just violent science fiction films, but they're, they're actually a lot more complicated than that. And they raise all sorts of interesting philosophical questions. Um, now... Um, you know, questions about artificial intelligence, about time travel, about, uh, the, you know, humans uh, relationship with uh, with technology um, and things like that. Um, and uh, feminism as well, you know, because of the, the character of Sarah Connor, uh, mental illness and all sorts of fascinating things. Uh, this chapter that I've got open here is chapter 19 and it's called Wittgenstein and what's inside the Terminator's head by Anti Cusella. Uh, Anti Cusella. Uh, and it's it's basically about um, uh, artificial intelligence, and it goes like this: the three term uh, the three Terminator movies, especially Terminator Two: Judgment Day, invite us to consider whether machines have mental lives like we do. So do you know do do Terminators or indeed any sort of uh, artificial intelligences? Uh, think in the same way that we do. Um, among the most basic aspects of human mental life are emotions, feelings, sensations, and self-awareness. 
Could a Terminator have feelings and sensations? Does the T-101 have self-awareness like a human does? I'm not a very sentimental person, but when I first saw Terminator 2, I was quite moved. The scene in which the T-101, Arnold Schwarzenegger's character, is lowered into the molten uh, steel by Sarah Connor is touching. And after seeing the movie a dozen times, the scene still strikes me as emotionally powerful. Why is this? One reason is that the viewer is able to see the grief of the fatherless John Connor, who has formed an emotional bond with the cybernetic organism. It's easy to empathise with John's sadness, because he's about to lose a father figure. But the main reason why the scene is so touching for me is not empathy with the grief of John, but sympathy for the sadness I perceived from the T-101. But how can this be? Intuition tells us that a machine doesn't have emotions. A Terminator is simply a machine, and so it's it's incapable of feeling sadness, joy or grief. If this is so, it makes no sense to feel sorry for the Terminator. After all, we can't relate to its feelings if it doesn't have any. Yet I think that it does make sense to feel sympathy for the T-101. By the end of T-2, we've come to think of the T-101 as one of us, as a being with emotions of its own. The Terminator's self-destruction wouldn't be noble from our perspective, wouldn't move us, if we thought that the T-101 was completely indifferent to its fate. If we're moved by the self-destruction of the Terminator, it's because we feel that somebody, and not just something, is being destroyed. We can place ourselves in its shoes and imagine how we would feel if such a choice were in front of us. We may feel sorry for the T-101 because it's going to lose its existence. We may think of the Terminator's act as being unselfish because it puts the interests of humans before its own. But of course, these views make sense only if we believe that the T-101's mental life is similar to ours. And if that, and if it is, then there may be good reasons to reevaluate the real difference between machines and persons. Um, let's take a reasonably simple definition of a person first. A person is a being that's self-aware, which means that it can think about the process of thinking itself. A person has emotions and can make choices. When questions about the differences and similarities between machines and persons are raised in philosophy or in films like The Terminator, it's a fairly common-sense idea of a person much like this one that's used as a measuring stick. Uh, Given this definition, how similar to a person is the T-101? Most people would say that a person has a mental life while a machine doesn't. It feels like something to be a person, whereas it doesn't feel like anything to be a machine. One way to examine the common sense idea of machine versus person is to carefully look at the difference between behaviour of a person and the behaviour of a machine. Ludwig Wittgenstein... 1889 to 1951, an Austrian philosopher suggested this method, claiming only of a living human being and what resembles or behaves like a living human being can one say that it has sensations, it sees, is blind, it hears, is deaf, is conscious or unconscious. Wittgenstein doesn't mean that a machine could never have sensations or that a machine could never be conscious. Instead, he was considering how we use language. What do we mean when we say that a human has sensations but a machine does not? What are the facts on which we could base this difference? Wittgenstein's answer is this. 
As things currently stand, the only criterion for what it means to be a thinking thing is the behaviour of human beings. Human behaviour, for Wittgenstein, is a sign that stands for being conscious and having a mental life. To see what he means, take the phenomenon of pain. Moaning and crying are signs that we interpret to mean that the moaner or crier is experiencing pain, which by itself is mental and private. Pain behaviour is not limited to simple things like crying, of course. Seeing a doctor or taking a painkiller are pain behaviours as well. For Wittgenstein, the meaning of any behaviour, the way that we understand it, is tied to a complex web of human habits, customs, rules and institutions. In fact, if we couldn't understand the behaviour of a creature like ourselves in these respects, we couldn't make sense of its mental life at all. But Wittgenstein goes even further than this, arguing that the relationship between behaviour and having a mental life is not merely that of a sign and what it signifies. For Wittgenstein, complex behaviour is constitutive of mental life. In other words, meaningful actions that we observe in others become the touchstone of mental life and not merely a symptom of something that's going on in our heads. If Wittgenstein's point about uh, about the relationship between behaviour and our conclusions about the mind isn't clear enough, consider how people who have mental illnesses are usually diagnosed. Deranged behaviour on the part of a person implies that there is something wrong with the person's mind. It seems that what we mean by having a mind is really being capable of acting certain kinds of rational ways. These complex forms of behaviour are important if we are, to if we are to conclude that other beings have mental lives. We don't treat stones or tables as having minds. Animals are somewhere between things and persons. The more an animal behaves like we do, the higher degree of mental activity we grant to it. Complex machines like terminators are another example of borderline cases. In terms of their behaviour, terminators are practically identical to humans. This makes sense since these machines were originally developed as infiltrators who could approach humans without being revealed as the killing machines that they are. So if we agree with Wittgenstein about behaviour being the touchstone of mental life, then we should conclude that it makes good sense to treat Terminators as if they had a mental life. The conclusion is justified because the behaviour of these machines is very similar to that of humans. A Terminator would also likely pass the most famous uh, test designed to answer the question of whether machines can think, the Turing test. The test, named after the famous mathematician Alan Turing, looks at the result of a conversation with a machine when we cannot decide whether the conversation partner was a machine or not. If Turing's test is sound, and if a Terminator passes it, then perhaps the Terminator really is an intelligent thinking being. Wittgenstein would say that the Terminator has demonstrated behaviour that shows that it has a mind. But should we agree with him? Is the behaviour of a human and a T-101 similar enough to say that these machines have a mental life? And so on and so forth. That's the kind of thing that you can read in Terminator and philosophy. I'll be back, therefore I am. And it's really, you know, exploring, I guess that chapter there is exploring that question of, you know, uh, when is a person a person? And if you create an artificial person who operates in exactly the same way as a normal person, uh, at what point do we consider that person to have the same rights as a normal person? And that's kind of like that Blade Runner idea, you know? More human than human. 
Um, you know, you've seen the film Blade Runner, uh, which is about these replicants that are created and then they escape. And um, Harrison Ford's character is given the task of finding them and and and, and killing them because they they present a danger. But, um, you know, when you create someone who feels emotions, who is exactly the same as a human, uh, what's to say that they then don't have, uh, if they don't have feelings, what's to say that they... Um, that they don't have the same rights as humans, especially if they think they're human as well. You know, if they've had memories implanted in them and they actually think and feel that they are humans, they don't even know they're machines, do they have the same rights as humans? These are questions which more and more we will have to answer as artificial intelligence becomes more and more advanced, as artificial intelligence becomes more and more human-like uh, to the point where, you know, uh, it's going to be more and more difficult to tell the difference between a human and a machine. At what point will machines have rights and should they have rights? Uh, I wonder what you think about that. Um, two more books to go. Uh, this book I've got now is called The Girls by Emma Klein. And uh, last year or the year before, it was like a uh, tipped as being like the top book of the year. Again, haven't read it. I've read the first couple of pages. I'm looking forward to reading it properly. Um, 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 basically, the book, I don't know what the book is about, except that I think it's about a group of uh, a group of girls in the 1960s who get involved in a cult, I think. And I think it might be related to the Manson family. You know, the Manson family, they were like a hippie commune in California in the early 70s who took far too much acid and then went on a killing spree. They like went mental because they took so many drugs and Charles Manson brainwashed them and sort of weaponized them and turned them into like this, this group of killers and they preyed on members of California or Los Angeles's kind of celebrity community. Horrific and considered to be one of the, the, the key moments in the, in the death of the, the, the kind of hippie dream. Um, and I think this book tells the story of some girls who join the cult or something to do with that. I'm not sure. This is what it says on the inside cover. This is The Girls by Emma Klein. And it's a work of fiction. And the, in, on the inside cover, it says this. Evie Boyd is desperate to be noticed. In the summer of 1969, empty days stretch out under the California sun. The smell of honeysuckle thickens the air and the sidewalks radiate heat. Until she notices them. The snatch of cold laughter. Hair long and uncombed. Dirty dresses skimming the tops of thighs. Cheap rings like a second set of knuckles, the girls. And at the centre, Russell. Russell and the ranch, down a long dirt track and deep in the hills. Incense and clumsily strummed chords on a guitar. Rumours of sex, frenzied gatherings, teen runaways. Was there a warning, a sign of things to come? Or is Evie already too enthralled by the girls to see that her life is about to be changed forever? 
So it sounds to me like a, the story of a girl, who's like some listless girl in California in the 60s, who gets kind of obsessed with these girls that she sees, and she gets drawn into this community, and then something horrible happens. Um, and you know what? I'm going to read like the first page or two of the book because it's so well written. I mean, this is really, really well written stuff. Okay, so imagine the scenario. Uh, you're looking uh, at the story from the view uh, of this girl called Evie, who's sitting in the park, bored, and then she notices these girls walking through the park, and she becomes kind of fascinated and obsessed by them. And there's kind of undercurrents of sexuality and undercurrents of danger and fascination and stuff like that it's it's really good writing um and so these are the this is the first page of the book uh it goes like this i looked up because of the laughter and kept looking because of the girls i noticed their hair first long and uncombed then their jewelry catching the sun the three of them were far enough away that I saw only the periphery of their features, but it didn't matter. I knew they were different from everyone else in the park. Families milling in vague line, waiting for sausages and burgers from the open grill. Women in checked blouses scooting into their boyfriend's sides. Kids tossing eucalyptus buttons at the feral-looking chickens that overran the strip. These long-haired girls seemed to glide above all that was happening around them, tragic and separate, like royalty in exile. I studied the girls with a shameless, blatant gape. It didn't seem possible that they might look over and notice me. My hamburger was forgotten in my lap, the breeze blowing in minnow stink from the, the breeze blowing in minnow stink from the river. It was an age when I'd immediately scan and rank other girls, keeping up a constant tally of how I fell short. And I saw right away that the black-haired one was the prettiest. I'd expected this even before I'd been able to make out their faces. There was a suggestion of otherworldliness hovering around her, a dirty smock dress barely covering her ass. She was flanked by a skinny redhead and an older girl dressed with the same shabby afterthought, as if dredged from a lake, all their cheap rings like a second set of knuckles. They were messing with an uneasy threshold, prettiness and ugliness at the same time, and a ripple of awareness followed them through the park, mothers glancing around for their children, moved by some feeling they couldn't name, women reaching for their boyfriend's hands. The sun spiked through the trees, like always, the drowsy willows, the hot wind gusting over the picnic blankets. But the familiarity of the day was disturbed by the path the girls cut across the regular world, sleek and thoughtless as sharks breaching the water. That's good writing, it is, come on. The Girls by Emma Klein, now in an uh, increasingly large pile of books uh, sitting on the floor beside me. And the last book I've got here is a book that I have read, uh, but I just included it in the pile because it was nearby. And this is a really nice graphic novel. Um, and it's, it's, a, a gra it's a Sherlock Holmes graphic novel published by Selfmade Hero. And you can find these on selfmadehero.com. 
And if you're a fan of Sherlock Holmes and you're a fan of graphic novels, you've got to check these out. They're absolutely brilliant. There's a few different Sherlock Holmes graphic novels. Uh, there's The Hand of the Baskervilles, A Study in Scarlet, The Sign of Four, and The Valley of Fear. And this one is The Valley of Fear. Uh, Colin, Arthur Conan Doyle uh, with uh, work from uh, Ed Gington and Culbard. And all I wanted to say about this is that these graphic novels are lovely. They're really nicely drawn. Uh, they're a really nice way to enjoy Sherlock Holmes stories. Again, even if you know the stories uh, already, uh, they're just really nicely presented <clears throat> and uh, beautiful artwork, uh, <clears throat> lovely drawings that, that really capture... Uh, <clears throat> they really capture the characters of Holmes and Watson uh, very nicely realised and illustrated and just a great way to enjoy Sherlock Holmes stories. So check them out, selfmadehero.com um, and the, the Sherlock Holmes graphic novel series. Uh, I just really recommend them. And that's the end of this episode about books uh, in English. It's gone on for an hour and a half now. Uh, thank you so much for listening. I'm now going to go and um, you know get myself ready for my holiday. I hope you enjoyed listening to this. Please don't forget to vote for Luke's English Podcast in the pod, uh, British Podcast Awards, uh, britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote uh, and search for Luke's English Podcast. Uh, you are a wonderful person for listening all the way to the end of this. Don't forget you can see all the names of the books I've mentioned on the page for this episode on my website. Join the mailing list and whenever I upload new episodes you'll get a link in your inbox it's the easiest way to get to the page for the episode um, and that's it have a nice day morning night evening or whatever it is that you're doing and i'll speak to you again on the podcast soon when i'm back from my holiday thank you very much for listening but for now goodbye bye 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 thanks for listening to luke's english podcast for more information visit teacherluke.co.uk 